This is episode 100 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast. And today's guest is none other than the wonderful Dr. Susan Langmore. Dr. Langmore is a professor in the Department of Otolaryngology, Boston University School of Medicine. She was formerly clinical professor of speech-language hearing sciences. Over the years, she has held a full clinical caseload in addition to teaching at Boston University. She currently is conducting research in several areas related to dysphagia and is based out of California. She is best known for developing the FEES procedure, and she has taught many clinicians how to become proficient in using this procedure. She is also well known for her research in aspiration pneumonia. Recently, she completed a clinical trial with head and neck cancer patients. She has been awarded Fellow of ASHA and Honors of the Association. She is on the editorial board of the journal Dysphagia. And this year, Dr. Langmore is president of the Dysphagia Research Society. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. You guys, we hit 1 million downloads. That's insane. 1 million times this podcast has been downloaded. This little old podcast from a loudmouth speech pathologist who's really passionate about swallowing disorder. So that's really cool. So not only is this the 100th episode, but... Um, just yesterday or the day before we hit 1 million downloads. So, um, I haven't really let it sink in yet. I'll probably celebrate at some point, but I had a teething toddler on me and a husband that was eating chicken wings next to me. It was, you know, just a really dreamy way that you'd envision celebrating a million downloads, a <laughs> hundred podcast episodes, but holy cow, I cannot believe we are here. <laughs> Episode 100. I honestly cannot believe it. I think I wanted to burn this thing to the ground after episode 10 and then 20 and then 50 and then 70, but no, (laughs) we're here. And it's, this podcast has just been wonderful, wonderful. And I cannot thank all of you guys enough for listening and supporting and writing in and suggesting and everybody that's been on here. I've only done, I think I've done two solo episodes. So thank you so much to 98 of our guests, (laughs) although some of them were repeats. So Maybe like 90-ish guests, but thank you. Thank you, everybody. This honestly takes a gigantic village to do, and I would be so remiss if I did not thank my wonderful assistant, Joy. She does all the tech behind all of this because I still don't know how to do anything other than click record and put in a Google Drive, so she does everything else. And also, Stephanie Jacobson, she's a wonderful SLP in San Diego. She does all of the editing and the social media stuff, so thank you, Steph. You guys both know that I this thing would be dead in the ground if it wasn't for you, too. So thank you guys so, 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 so much. So this is a huge week. Not only have we hit episode 100, but hit our one millionth download, which makes me want to completely vomit, thinking that people have listened to me 1 million times. So I'm sorry, or I'm grateful, or hopefully this has been helpful to you. So in honor of that, I can't thank you guys enough for helping to carry this podcast. So I wanted to do a few 
awesome giveaways. So the way that we're going to do these is going to be on Instagram. And that is only because Instagram loves people to do giveaways. It's difficult to do other giveaways on the internet and on Facebook because they have all sorts of crazy rules that we have to abide by. And it's just easier to do it on Instagram. So if you follow me at Teresa Richard SLP on Instagram, you can sign up to win some of these awesome giveaways. So the first one is Carolina Speech Pathology Endo HD, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful sponsor of this podcast. Again, we, I could not do this podcast without them. Endo HD provides the fees equipment for actually a lot of hospitals, facilities, mobile providers. And then they also have their education component, which does education for fees, but also performs fees with a lot of facilities as well under Carolina Speech Pathology. So thank you. I, I, you guys all know how much I love and appreciate all of you and all of your support. And they have graciously donated $1,000 to a winner. So 500 of that will cover either a basic or advanced fees course of your choosing. And then you also will get a $500 stipend for travel. So if you you know, need help out with flights or hotels or anything to get out there, you will have that as well. So right after this episode airs, you will find the post on Instagram for this so that you can enter. And then, so again, I can't thank EndoHD Carolina Fees enough, you guys, for helping to sponsor this podcast. So please reach out to them. Thank them (laughs) for helping this thing to go on. We also have another giveaway from our friends at AmpCare. They are giving away two different prize packs. One, well, they're both the same, but to two people. (laughs) So um, it will be their online course and also an AmpCare bag. And one of their, what are those fancy Arctic coffee mug things? I think you guys know what I mean. Anyways, (laughs) I'll have the picture up on Instagram. But yes, thank you to our friends at Amcare for contributing that. They've been such a big supporter of this podcast as well. So uh, please check them out. Please thank them for helping this podcast continue as well. And then we also have another awesome giveaway, and that is from our wonderful guests that we had a few episodes back, Dr. Crary and Dr. Carnaby from MDTP, so the McNeil Dysphagia Therapy Program. They are not paying me to say this at all. This is my own personal opinion. I think every SLP should have the privilege of taking MDTP because I think it it is so valuable to our profession and it does change the way you think about dysphagia, but just makes everything make sense. I think like, I think we're just kind of fire hosed with all this different information and it's hard to see how the pieces of the puzzle all fit together. And I think with MDTP, it does that. So whether you are, I know a lot of people think it doesn't work in acute care or can't work in home health. And I think those are both ideal settings to do it in, (laughs) as well as skilled nursing, outpatient, whatever. I think it's just a really valuable course to take. So what me and Dr. Crary and Dr. Carnaby have teamed up to do is five winners, five winners are going to receive free registration to an MDTP course in Orlando on February 13th. So you'll receive free registration to the course. Not only will you receive free registration to the course, you will also get to go out to dinner with me and Dr. Carnaby and Dr. Crary. And that is not all. You will also be allowed to stay for the week. We will put you up and watch Dr. Carnaby do MDTP on her 
patients on her clients in her clinic. So not only will you be able to to learn the information, you'll get to watch the wonderful Dr. Carnaby do it live and in person, which I personally can't wait to go <laughs> to go see. So again, we'll be doing this this giveaway over on Instagram. So again, I cannot thank you guys enough for all of your support for this podcast, for hitting episode 100 for the millionth download. I am also super happy to announce that we now have Swallow Your Pride t-shirts. So people have been asking for so long. I wasn't sure if I wanted to do that. Why not do it now? We've hit 100 episodes. We've hit a million downloads. So if you go to bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash capital S, capital Y, capital P shirts. That's bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash S-Y-P shirts. And S-Y-P is capitalized. You can check out the shirts we have for sale. They are, there's a men's fit and a women's fit available. So if you'd love to get a t-shirt, support our cause, support this wonderful podcast, please go ahead and grab one. I'd love to see you guys in it. Take a picture, tag me, share it on social media. I'd love to see it. I have to share a quick story, right? So I have this computer that I strictly use just for podcasting. My husband bought it last year because he was sick of me complaining about my computer always freezing up and everything. So he's like, just use this. Don't use it for anything else. (laughs) So I have it set up on a desk. It's my podcasting desk. I have the microphone, the headphones, everything set up to it. So that all I have to do is click record, right? So of course, the day that I'm supposed to interview Dr. Langmore, Dr. Langmore, right? Like I've been reaching out to her for probably a year to get her on here. And I finally had to tell her, look, this is the 100th episode. I want no one else to be on this episode but you. Will you please come on and do it? And she said, oh, of course, I'd be honored. So we set a date. We set a time. We had a few phone calls before then. We had everything talked about, you know, ahead of time about what we were going to talk about. We sit down. I turn on my computer and it says it has to like run an update and it'll be available in like three hours. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. So Dr. Langmore is calling me, texting me. She's like, where are you? I don't see you on the interview. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me that literally my computer is running updates that it's never run the entire year that I've had this thing. So Dr. Langmore was really patient with me. Of course, once it updated, which you know doesn't always take the three hours, but it did finish updating. Then I had to repair my headphones. I had to repair the microphone. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so humiliated. I promise I know how to do this. <laughs> And she's like, well, you've done a hundred episodes. So I'd like to think, you know, how to do this by now. And it was so humiliating, but Dr. Langmore, thank you for your patience with this. Thank you for this episode. I think it's wonderful. It's going to help so many SLPs out there. And thank you so much for all of your contributions. Thank you to all of you listeners. You guys are wonderful. Hello, Susan. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Yes, that this is the big 100th episode that I, yes, that that you get to be the guest on. Wow. 100th. How many years? Yes. It'll be almost exactly two years that we've started. So every week. So I've put, yep, I put one out every week. All right. Well, thank you. Yes. Thank you. So if anybody is living under a rock and they don't know who you are, maybe you could tell them a little bit about who you are. Okay. Susan Langmore is my name, and I have worked many years in many different settings, starting in Chicago and then in Cambridge, England, then Ann Arbor, Michigan, then San Francisco, and then Boston. And I finally, quote, retired a few years ago from seeing patients and teaching at Boston University and moved back to San Francisco, which is my home. 
However, I have not, it, it seems as though other things have filled my time. So right now I'm involved in a few research projects and that takes time. And I've been giving fees courses and other invitations. So traveling and speaking a lot. And this year I am president of the Dysphagia Research Society which is taking a huge amount of time. We're now planning the program. It's going to be a great program. But many, many speakers. At last count, we had 67 speakers. Oh, my goodness. I know. It's just out of hand. And so we're working on concessions and getting ready to invite them. And that's been taking a lot of my time in the last couple of months. So sitting home and eating bonbons is not what you're doing during your retirement. I I envisioned myself out sailing and hiking, and and I do a little bit of that, but not nearly as much as I want to. So after I'm done with the presidency, I think it will be much more manageable. Good, good. Well, I know we greatly appreciate your contributions and your continuing to, to remain involved. So thank you. Okay. By the way, okay. the meeting, just one last plug, the meeting is in Puerto Rico. Yes, sounds beautiful. So it is going to be in a beautiful place, and the rooms are already starting to sell out. So it's it's a pretty, I think it's going to be a good meeting, well attended. That's awesome. All right. What do you want to talk about today, Susan? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's talk about the two topics you suggested, which is fees and aspiration pneumonia. Wonderful. Okay. And if we have time, let's talk about what you do with those exams in terms of management. Beautiful. Okay. Which one should we start with? Uh, Well, we should probably start with fees. Awesome. So should I just start from the beginning? I mean, that that could take a long time. (laughs) That's okay. You know, I think what really, you know, why I really wanted to have you on for this 100th episode is, you know, my entire career, my entire passion, everything that I do has been stemmed around this procedure that you were able to develop, you know, however many years ago, not dating you, you Mm -hmm. still look like a spring chicken. Mm -hmm. But um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think what's so fascinating, and you know, you've even written about it in the dysphagia journal last year, I love the article you wrote about that, too, is that there's still some people that are fearful of it or don't think it's good or don't think it has any place in our field. And I just mm-hmm. think they're bananas. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> so what do I think about that? Yeah. And, and I would love if you kind of could talk about really where it started and how you just stemmed upon this awesome idea. And yeah. Well, it started in the, the late eighties. I was at the VA in Ann Arbor, the VA hospital, and um, we worked with ENT. And fiber optic laryngoscopes had really just become common at that time. And so they would examine their patients instead of the laryngeal mirror or whatever else. They would, they would pass this fiber optic scope transnasally and then look at the larynx and look for pathology. I mean, ENT is looking for mucosal abnormalities, cancer, stuff like that. And so I took a peek through the eyepiece and I could see that the larynx was beautifully visualized with this view and so i just thought well what would happen if someone swallowed and of course the ent said well we don't do that we don't we're not interested in that we're interested in anatomy and pathology so there was a otolaryngologist nels olson a speech pathologist ken Schatz, and i the three of us sort of on our own time played around with it and we had we had each other scope and swallow 
And as you know, if you do fees, if you have someone who's normal, you may not see anything. If the person triggers the swallow where the bolus is up high and they clear, they have no residue, it's just a brief white out and everything looks the same. But when we got patients with dysphagia, we realized that there was a lot you could see, that the problems they had initiating the swallow could be seen with a lot of spillage. If they didn't clear the bolus through, you saw residue. If they couldn't close off that laryngeal valve completely, you'd see penetration or aspiration. So then we we realized this, that we were onto something. And what we were looking for initially was a procedure that we could take to bedside for patients who couldn't get floral or for who they couldn't get floral for a couple of days, or it would be very difficult to get them out of the ICU and down to fluoroscopy. And in those days, we didn't have nice little chairs that, you know, could transport patients easily into the fluoro suite. So it was a big hassle and it was a real need. And that's how we started it. But then over the years, as the technology advanced and we got cameras and recorders and, and uh, monitors so that everyone could see what was going on, the exam became more valuable. And it eventually was an exam that we would choose to do, especially with the inpatients. And then, and then after a while, we began to see its value in rehab with patients who needed to learn compensatory or rehabilitative strategies. So we were doing it just in Ann Arbor at the VA. And then I started presenting it at meetings. And that's when I ran into a lot of pushback. Yeah. Some people who do fluoro, and of course, everyone did fluoro in those days. That's all they did. Yeah. Didn't think this was a good exam. And I'm not sure why they didn't just embrace it as, hey, this is another exam. But they didn't. I mean, some people did, obviously. Some people tried fees, and those who did loved it. But some people said this was not a good exam. They were fearful that ENT would take dysphagia away from us because they apparently they would see the value in endoscopy and they would take over dysphagia. Interesting. Yeah. And other people argued, well, you can't see the esophagus. And and then a lot of people argued that it was too risky. Patients were going to die, you know, and, and so there, it just, I, at meetings at the dysphagia research society meetings, DRS meetings for years, I would stand up and say something and then someone else would immediately stand up and say, we should not be doing this exam. I mean, it was that clear. So that seems a long time ago now. I don't hear that at all anymore. It's made its way to the internet now. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) That's true. It's, it's, um, It's a commonly accepted procedure. I think the people that don't do it are often people who have learned about swallowing by viewing fluoroscopy. They've seen a lot of patients. They know what that view looks like. They're very comfortable with it. And they've, they just find the endoscopy view off putting. They, I mean, you can see the airway, but what else can you see is what they would say. Yeah. And it's true. I think if you do a fees exam, you have to be a more, you have to think a little more. You're not, it's not going to, you're not going to see the bolus just come down, go into the airway, and you can report it. You're going to have to figure out when it happened, why it happened. Yeah. You're, you're going to have to really analyze things a little more deeply. So I think that's, that's why you will still read articles where it's called the gold standard, the gold standard. Why the gold standard? 
Yeah. I mean, it's cl- as close to the truth as we have it. The best procedure or means to find out what's happening. And I think for some patients, that is true. Yeah. But for other patients, endoscopy is the gold standard. I think it depends what you're looking for. Sometimes neither one is. Manometry is a better tool for some issues, like UES opening. So I don't think we have one gold standard, and I always make that point. Yeah, yeah. I think what what I've learned, too, is that, you know, like you said, some people that are, are so, I guess, sort of against it is that they've learned based on fluoro. And I think kind of for me, I learned the opposite way is that the fluoro images that I was exposed to were like, four frames per second. You know, you can oh. barely see anything on the x-ray, but then yeah. I was introduced to this really beautiful high definition technology that was an endoscope. And I was like, I can see the world, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so I think it really, you know, and people that I talk to are, it's back and forth with, you know, are you looking at fluoro under four FPS? Or are you looking at, at under 30 FPS? Are you looking at an endoscope that was made in 2019 or one that was made in 1990. So I think we owe it to ourselves to be fair and that are available in 2019. That's true. That's true. So I'd I'd love to hear a little more, Susan, about, you know, kind of how it actually became cemented in our practice and kind of, you know, actually has a billing code and things like that. You know, how, Mm -hmm. I guess, how did you have to go about presenting it in a way to get it established as a practice in our field? Well, by presenting it at at conferences, it got it yeah. got some traction. Yeah. And, and people were doing it then. But in order, it was very important that we get a billing code, obviously. And so what we were using is the otolaryngology code when they do their routine exams, diagnostic laryngoscopy. I believe it was 1991. It was just a few years after my first publication, which was 1988. Wow. So maybe it was 1991 that it was first made a billing code. So it's been a billing code for many, awesome. many. Well, that's great. Thanks so much for sharing that. So the billing, the billing was a big landmark. Awesome. So we've got Asha to thank for that. Let me, I've got a bone to pick yeah. with Asha while we're talking about how wonderful they are, but there's been some awesome fees, position statements and things like that that have evaporated from the website in recent years. I don't know if you know <laughs> anything. Date, I yeah. Guess. yeah. There's a committee with the um, BCSS yes. that is looking, in fact, I have a conference call with them later today. We're going to, we're, trying to not resurrect the whole thing, but come up with practice guidelines. And awesome. Yeah. So that, I think that committee is going to be updating them. They good, ta- good. That committee talked about, and I've presented to a few different groups, are you interested in, in formalizing training, in requiring a certain amount of training? Because some training really is needed with fees. Yes, absolutely. And I think that a lot of people would like that, but there is no group so far that's willing and happy to take that job on. Because if you're going to require training, you have to have someone to judge it and evaluate it. And no group feels like they want to take that on. The BCSS doesn't and DRS doesn't. Oh, yeah, that's a shame. So... I think for now, we're just going to go with recommendations. Yeah, I I definitely voted yes for that because I think, you know, if we go back and talk about kind of the fluoro versus fees thing, I I know there's some fees companies out there that are saying you don't need formal training. You don't need supervised passes. You can just pass on your colleagues and now you're all of a sudden competent. 
And I just feel like that is such a disservice, not only to our patients, but our credibility in that, you know, there there is a a crap ton that you need to know to do this and to do it well and to be able to, you know, relay the correct information to your patient and and other physicians. And I think that really discredits it. We'll just take a course or read something yeah. and then train their, their coworker. And then that coworker trains yeah. the and next that's what's coworker. Happening. That's exactly and what's by happening. The, time the last person does it. They don't know what they're doing. Yep. Yep. That's exactly you know, what's all happening. All they're doing is looking for aspiration. Yep. Yep. And that was what I was going to say before. Fees, if you're comparing fees and floral, fees is much better for visualizing the bolus. You can see exactly where it is, basically because of the view. You're looking at the larynx and the hypopharynx from above, and you can see exactly where the bolus is. So, in studies that have compared fluoro and fees for who's you know which which view detects penetration and aspiration more often, fees always wins because we can see exactly where the bolus is, and we can see just a little drop of the bolus. Proponents of fluoroscopy argue. Rightly, that it's that you, that you don't want to stop there. You want to see why and you want to look at what structural movements are reduced. And that's where fees where you need to take, I would say, take a course or learn from someone who's very good how to move beyond just the bolus findings to why is that happening? What's going wrong? Because that then leads you to treatment. Just saying there's residue or aspiration doesn't guide your treatment at all. It's it's not really very revealing. Yeah. So, well thank you for sharing that. And so that's what I do when I when I teach is try to move people beyond look at the bolus to why is this happening? Yeah. That I think is the critical and I'm I'm sure you agree. Yeah, it, it's very critical and I think that's the pushback that we get from some people about why fees isn't good because people say well all you can see is aspiration residue and secretions you can't yeah. tell why people are or what the you know biomechanical impairments are and i think they're wrong right they are wrong i mean (laughs) it's you have to think and and it's true fluoro sees more structural movements especially deep to the surface of course but we can see airway closure we can see we can see how the airway closes better than fluoroscopy can yeah and and we can deduce hyolaryngeal excursion by looking at whether the epiglottis retroflexes, those are two, two critical structural movements that we see. Yep, yep. I'm glad you said that because I think that's a lot of the pushback that some people say is, well, you can't tell hyolaryngeal excursion. It's like, well, you can infer it based on what you see with other structures and movements. And, yes, that's yeah. right. You have to infer, but they're correct inferences. They've been proven yeah. correct. Awesome. So, so you're okay inferring those. And the ones that you can't infer uh, are ones that we still need to work on. Yeah. I think, yeah. And sometimes, sometimes people need fluoro. Sometimes people who, who have a fluoroscopy study really need fees. I think yeah. they're both good exams. Yeah. I, I really do believe that. I think they're both fine. I don't, I think either one in isolation is not as good as being able to have both. Agreed. And I think what I always tell people, kind of my mantra is the best test is the one you can get. That's because true. I know I, I live and work in some rural areas. And, and I think what annoys me so much is I'll go to some of these facilities that have access mm-hmm. to fees, but don't have access to fluoro. And they say, well, I hear fees is inferior, so oh. we're not going to even do it. And it's like, no, 
your patient deserves something. Like something is better than nothing if that's all you can get. So, so, so people who are doing fluoro are saying fees is inferior. Yeah. Because you don't see the hyoid move or something like that, you know? Correct. Yeah. And maybe it's a never ending fight. I don't know why it has to be one better than the other. I mean, really what we want ideally is to have both. Right. Right. And 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 that's really why I'm just, yeah. And and I'm such an advocate for fees because I've seen it be able to go into places that Mm -hmm. these patients wouldn't otherwise never be serviced, you know? And the exam, being able to do an instrumental exam is so important for patients. It's so important for treatment. You know, the clinical exam doesn't tell you half as much as either instrumental exam does. Right. So just depending on the clinical, you're going to be, I think what happens is speech pathologists end up making very conservative recommendations because they're afraid they're missing something. Yeah. Now you can tell me if you agree. I, I think that's the trend that the clinical exam tends to lead to more conservative recommendations, more thick liquid, more puree. Very much so. Yep. More tuck your chin and have puree on thick liquids. Yep. Just to be sure that everything is covered. Whereas if you do a fees or a fluoro, you yep. would see that it's not necessary or it's not helping. What I think, and that's kind of why I get frustrated some days with my job, because a lot of times I, it'll be like an entire week I'll go in and I'll scope 10 patients and none of them even have dysphagia, but they mm-hmm. coughed once. And so now they're on thickened liquids and they've been doing exercises for four weeks. And then someone calls yeah. me in and it's like, it's just maddening that we're not using these tools from the get go. You know, That's this right. patient has a cough from being on lisinopril, not because of dysphagia. You know, it's just we're, we've got to think broader here. Yeah. And yeah. Patients have a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. Oh, okay. Well, you have to have thick liquids and puree then. Yeah. Yeah. No, no not, not even evaluate them. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, I mean, patients with some disease, some progressive diseases in nursing homes, that's the rest of their life. And quality of life is what is the, what they get three times a day to eat is maybe their only pleasure. Yep. Yep. So yeah, I feel really strongly about that. The yep. overuse of thick liquids and puree diets. Yep. yep. I see it. I see it all the time. I had a guy last week that had been on puree and putting thick liquids for six months and never mm-hmm. had an instrumental, just, they just kept and doing exercise. No, didn't need it at all. It had a beautiful swallow. Yeah. So that's why I do what yeah. I do. <laughs> good, good. And, and that's why you're here. Yeah. That's why we, that's why the patients need us. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I need you here yeah. to tell people that fees is good and useful. Oh, it is. I mean, <laughs> I've, I've done them both for years and years and uh, rarely am I surprised by one or the other. I mean, when people first start doing fees, they think, well, maybe I'm missing aspiration. I always encourage them, go ahead and do fluoro on that same patient and look and compare. And it's, it's rare that you're, that you're, you, you're surprised. Yeah. Yeah. So let, let me ask you, because I think I keep hearing through the grapevine, you know, a, a lot of people will have these debates and it's like, well, let's just yeah. agree to disagree until we have more simultaneous studies of fees mm-hmm. and fluoro, can we have these discussions? And I think people have said that you or maybe some doc students that you have had are doing more simultaneous studies. Uh-huh. Jess Pasignia, okay, who was a doctoral student of mine and is now actually director of Speech Path at Boston Medical Center, 
is doing simultaneous studies. Oh, beautiful. Okay. And so she's, for instance, she's now looking at whether epiglottic retroflexion, on fees, really does tell you that hyolaryngeal excursion was good or not good. Okay. So she's, she's testing some of these things, but there are a lot, there's a ton of, of studies that could be done and comparisons that could be made. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's clear from so far that yes, you see the bolus better with fees. Yeah. You know exactly where it is. In fact, the penetration aspiration scale that everyone uses, you know, what, def- when, at what point has someone penetrated? I think those landmarks are different on fees versus floral. I very much agree. Yes. And so penetration is going to be is seen by looking at the laryngeal rim. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? The, yep. yep. That's what that's the border that if if you think of the larynx as as a cup sitting within the hypopharynx, the rim of the cup is the rim of the larynx, the topmost point. So that if the bolus is right on the rim, it's not in and it's not out of the larynx. If it falls in, there's penetration. Yeah. If it stays out, it's just hypopharyngeal residue. It's piriform or molecular residue. And on fluoro, you don't see that rim. That's part that the areopiglottic fold and the uh, the two arytenoids you see, but the areopiglottic fold and then from there to the epiglottis. And and at what point of the epiglottis does it intersect? It's, it's just not seen well on fluoro. So people tend to use a landmark that's, I don't, it's something like oh, where the epiglottis and the arytenoids intersect on fluoro. Of course, they don't really, but where it looks like they intersect, then it's called penetration. And that would be, on fees, that would be way down. You would have penetrated way before it reaches that point. Yeah. yeah. So even our definitions of what is penetration differ. Yeah, that's very fascinating. And I think my brain is just exploding with thoughts now because I think that leads us to, well, if penetration is different for you than it is for me, and then I get these reports, well, consistent penetration. So I recommended thickened liquids because it's probably going to eventually spill into the airway. You know, and those mm-hmm. are the reports that I read like, no, like, <laughs> I, so people who are afraid of penetration yeah. and anytime someone penetrates there, yeah, they count penetration just as much as aspiration as if it were the same. Yeah. And it's not. I think a lot of people penetrate, penetrate a little bit over the epiglottis, you know, just, just barely, but don't aspirate. They might, if they were pushed, you know, drink, chug this down and don't stop and go faster, faster, faster. Sure. They yeah. might penetrate, but in, in regular day to day eating, drinking, they're not aspirating. Yeah. And if they're not aspirating, they ought to be able to have their thin liquid. Yeah. I agree. We're back to that. <laughs> we are. We are. I just, it's, it's yeah. just, I, I feel like we make so many strides in our field. And then I come upon a report or I hear from a patient and I'm like, what, where mm-hmm. are we? Like, <laughs> I have seen reports that say there was residue in the molecular. Therefore, the patient needs thick liquid and pure yes. yep. residue in the molecular. It's just yep. like any abnormality is the end of the game. You know, you're, you're doomed. That's, right. You're, you're in that bad pocket. Right. Right. And I think that's, you know, I think why I love doing fees so much is because I see so much of that, that I have such a stronger understanding of what's normal and what's common. Mm-hmm. And, you mm-hmm. know, if the patient consistently does it and everything else is working 100%, then no, yeah. it's not an impairment, you know. I don't think normals penetrate regularly. Yeah. I think it's an occasional thing. But that doesn't mean that 
it's not the same as a severe dysphagia that can't be compensated and that can't, that needs an altered diet or feeding tube even. Some people are going to, you know, they go all the way to, it needs a feeding tube. Yeah, we have to, we have to realize that there's this, this buffer zone where people are not normal, but they're not, they don't need drastic intervention. They could use some therapy. Yeah. If yep. someone tends to penetrate before they swallow, I would say, oh, they need to work on a controlled swallow. I need to work with them and teach them how not to spill. That's what they're doing. They're spilling beyond what their system can tolerate, and it leads to penetration. If spillage leads to penetration, you need to intervene, and you can often reduce that just by working on what I call a controlled swallow. I don't know if... if you're familiar with that or if everyone is it's sort of like the a hold a swallow and that count to three and swallow but it's not really that it's teaching people with biofeedback using fees so that you know if they're spilling or not yeah you practice holding the bolus in the mouth and you start out by just having the person take some water and hold it don't swallow don't swallow don't swallow don't swallow hold it, hold it, hold it until the person is, that's all they can think of is this liquid in their mouth that they're not supposed to swallow. And then I say, and when you're ready, swallow it. And then they swallow and swallow it all at once. People don't realize if they're spillers or not. People, you know, might spill, might have been a spiller their whole life. And now that they've had a stroke, it goes, you know, they're recovery from it their initiation is just a little bit delayed and so that spillage leads to penetration well you can reduce the spillage to nothing sometimes and i've had really good success with that technique awesome that's one example of penetration which is probably the most common time people penetrate just before they swallow they let it go and then because they've had a stroke or some neurologic disease, they're a little delayed in starting the swallow. And in that delay time, the bolus spills in, yeah. penetrates. Yeah. So what you're doing is working on a brisker initiation, but focusing on keeping it in the mouth and not spilling. So that's it's sort of a, a skill yeah. that people can learn, many people can learn. And And then after you've worked on this for a while, I was saying, hold it, hold it, hold it. Eventually, what you're going to do is just say, take it in your mouth, hold it, swallow. It's hardly a pause at all. And so it's, it's a, a nice new, what you've done is teach them a different way to initiate the swallow. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you for that explanation. Okay. <laughs> all right. Is there any, I think this would be a good segue into our next topic. Is there anything fees that we didn't unfold or? I'm working, just starting to work on a standardized scoring system, which needs to be done, awesome. have it validated, in, re, reliable, but it's it's just starting. We also have a residue scale that is in its final stages. It's called BRAX. Gintus Krishunas is leading that effort, and that's a leftover from when I was at Boston Medical Center, and so that that's going to be a standardized residue scale that can be used. Those are the two updates, awesome. I think. So, Susan, what about what happened to retirement? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I I keep trying to discipline myself and and cut down. I have people who are who now can give my fees courses. 
So it's it's a group. It's not just me. There are actually five speech pathologists who are, who are trained and ready to give the, the Langmore fees course. Oh, awesome. So that's good. That will allow me to cut back more. Yeah. Yeah. It just sounds, I'm so happy to hear about the standardized scoring protocol. That yeah. sounds wonderful and something yeah. we definitely need. So we need it. We need it. I need yeah. to, so I want to have more time to spend on that. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, I think this lends well into our next topic, something that, you know, I, when I do these interviews with people, I always ask them at the end, you know, is there a paper or an article that has been most significant in your practice? And mm time after time after time, the consistent answer is the predictors of pneumonia paper that, that you wrote however long ago that was. <laughs> that was a long time ago too, 1998. Yeah. And I do think it was a landmark paper because yeah. it, before that, I know I was among the speech pathologists, which, and I think probably all of us believed that people were getting pneumonia because they were aspirating food or liquid. And therefore we were, you know, critical to identify that, but we didn't realize aspiration pneumonia is a bacterial pneumonia. And it's the bacteria that go in with the food and liquid that most often cause the infection. Your lungs clear liquid and people rarely aspirate food anyway. That's much less common than liquid. And if it's chewed up well, your lungs can even clear food from the lungs. Of course, you can, you could asphyxiate if you don't chew the food, but that's a very different matter. So when we enrolled the patients, we gave them fluoroscopy and then fees exams. We followed them for years, for up to five years. We looked to see who got pneumonia, and the patients had all had a complete swallow eval and medical exam and dental exam. And so this was was headed, actually, the whole project was headed by a microbiologist at the University of Michigan Dental School. And so he was very interested in what bacteria are growing out in the mouth, and do we see that bacteria cause pneumonia. And so at the end of the study, we looked at who got pneumonia. And yes, a lot of the people who got pneumonia had dysphagia and aspirated. But when you look at all of the people that had dysphagia and just aspirated or had dysphagia without aspiration, only a small minority of them went on to get pneumonia. So it depends whether you're starting with who got, who has pneumonia, how many of them have dysphagia. Oh, a lot of them. But that's only a small portion of the people with dysphagia. So most people with dysphagia who aspirate do not go on to get pneumonia. And so that was the surprise. Yeah. What what were our risk factors? Who got pneumonia? Our significant risk factors actually first was people who were dependent for feeding. People who were fed by CNAs or whatever wrong and they food was shoveled in their mouth and then they yeah. did aspirate everything. And but then a lot of oral dental factors came out. People with with tooth decay or periodontal disease and people who did who had dirty mouths, people who did not have their teeth brushed. And it was the bacteria, and then we had a big lesson in the fact that bacteria lines our entire digestive system in the, from the mouth and the throat into the esophagus, etc. And it's that bacteria that is aspirated 
usually in saliva, but it, sometimes with food or liquid, but it's the bacteria that have been growing in the mouth and throat that are leading to the infection. And then we learned that patients who are in nursing homes or in hospitals tend to have different bacteria resident colonizing their mouths and throats than we do. We have a healthy immune system and we clean our mouth and we get rid of any bad bacteria. They don't. They don't have their teeth brushed. They have dirty mouths that bad. It's called pathogenic bacteria, bacteria that's pathogenic to the lungs. Really doesn't do any harm in the mouth, but if it's aspirated, it's it's difficult for the lungs to clear, much more likely to lead to pneumonia. So the oral dental factors and feeding tube, I think for the same for well, for multiple reasons, but also because people with feeding tubes got their teeth brushed even less often than people with teeth who were eating. So those were most of our risk factors. Dysphagia and and aspiration weren't even among the top ten risk factors or predictors of who would get pneumonia. So what that means is if you have a patient who has dysphagia, don't jump to, oh, you know, he's likely to get pneumonia. Look at the other risk factors and see, does he have those? Is he dependent for oral care? Does he get his teeth brushed? Is he dependent for feeding? Does he have a feeding tube? But a lot of it is oral dental. And so that was sort of a turnaround. And then what that led to were a lot of studies looking at whether improving oral care really did reduce pneumonia. And those studies have been so convincing. There are multiple studies that show that if you brush the teeth, if you even move from one time a day to two times a day, you're going to cut in half your risk of getting pneumonia. Yeah. So if you get rid of that bacteria in the mouth, You can aspirate (laughs) liquid and some food, and you still will not get pneumonia because you're not introducing that pathogenic bacteria to the lungs. Yeah. It's a totally personal story, but I have have a three-year-old, and he's a functional aspirator. He is, Mm. yes, born with special needs, but he's just a functional aspirator, and I've just been so diligent about brushing his teeth. We finally went to the dentist the other day, and she said he has perfect oral health. He has perfect teeth. She's like, whatever you're doing is going to keep him healthy for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, I just don't want anybody to do a small study on my child and, yes. and change his diet and make it all crazy. It is so, terribly important. Yeah. And, and if the patient or your son or whoever is in an institution, that bacteria is prevalent there. Yeah. And so yeah. if you're home, you're safer than if you're in an institution. If you're mobile, if you get up, if you exercise, if you ambulate, and if you can cough, you're, you know, you're even safer. But yes, oral care, the most important recommendation is keep the mouth clean, brush the teeth. You don't need anything special, just brush the teeth. Yeah. Let, Let me ask you about that, about that paper. Was, was there, Kind of how did you guys decide on those risk factors? Was it something you hypothesized or was it? No, we had probably 50 variables that we looked at. Just any paper, you know, some papers would say old age. We put that in as a factor. Some people, some papers would say, you know, is bed bound. We put that as a factor. We just listed all of the possible factors. And a lot of them came out on their own as associated with pneumonia. Yes, they're all risk factors, 
that that final list of 10 were just our best predictors, the most gotcha. significant predictors. So you could look beyond those 10 and say, yes, there's many other variables. But if you have 50 variables that are associated with pneumonia, you know, everyone is, you can't differentiate the people yeah. at high risk versus low risk. Yeah. So yeah. that's, that was it. Yeah. I think yeah. what I'm trying to figure out how to word this correctly, but I think what's so important is that in this kind of like litigious society that we live in, people are so fearful that anything they do is going to get them in a lawsuit or get them sued. And so yeah. I think yeah. we think of, well, if I let them have thin liquids and they aspirate and die, then it's on me. Mm -hmm. But I think what's so important is to be educated about all of these other factors that we need to help our patients understand yeah. as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I think, you know, again, the, let's say the patient wants to be able to drink and eat what he wants. As I understand it, the waiver it used to be that you could sign a waiver saying, I, yeah. I absolve you from responsibility. Well, I guess I should say my brother is in a nursing home and the nursing home said, we don't do waivers anymore. Yeah. So there was absolutely nothing that could be done to except to go by the speech pathologist recommendation. They said, this is what's going to guide us. And he even went on hospice and it didn't matter. So oh, it's, it, yeah, it's speech pathologists have a whole lot of power. We need to yeah. use it wisely. Use it wisely. Yeah. Yeah. Very yeah. much so. Yeah. yeah. I, I, what's interesting is I did, I saw a patient that had recurrent pneumonia was also COPD and, but just oral care was awful, 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 awful. Mm -hmm. And so I documented that in the recommendations that, you know, we've got to get oral care and the administrator called me and just chewed me out and told me to never write that because that's going to flag state and that'll make their facility look bad. And I was like, oh. I'm not changing it. That's what the patient needs. Like, <laughs> You brought me in. That his oral care was so poor, or they didn't want yeah. you to make that recommendation. Both. Both. Yes. Oh. Yeah. yeah. yeah, we, yeah. Uh, they are. They're very <laughs> afraid of of uh, being sued, uh, not by the patient. It's usually not yeah. the patient and family, but I guess it's whoever oversees nursing homes. Yeah. Yeah. Is going to ding them and yeah. find them or whatever they do. Yeah, I just said, I'm not changing it. You asked me to come in and give you my professional opinion. That's my professional opinion. So that's Good. what I'm writing. So. Good. And I'll bet the incidence of pneumonia goes down after he yeah. has, if he gets clean mouth. Yeah. Yeah. If. Good. Yes, if. Yes. <laughs> There's also reflux is a possibility, of course. In COPD, yes. I think of that. And that's another possible cause of pneumonia. Yeah. I think that's what's so fascinating is seeing that on fees a lot is, you know, it's when you explain that it's not yes. what's going down, it's what's coming back up when you actually see a patient reflux or have yes. backflow yes. or regurgitation on a fees. It's like, ah! Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. All right. Did we cover everything, Susan? Well, we, I think we did. We got, we talked about fees. We compared it to fluoro. We talked about pneumonia and our, both of our strong feelings about <laughs> speech pathologists die over diagnosing and, and ruining people's quality of life yeah. for fear that they might aspirate a drop of water, <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 I think, I think our opinions came across. Good. Okay. Do you have I any hope. final thoughts, anything you'd like to 
you know, impress upon everybody and your hope for the future? <laughs> well, I would hope that in the future, quality of life becomes is paid more attention to in terms of management. Patients who are at end-stage disease, you know, pneumonia, It's it was said years ago, pneumonia is an old man's best friend. And sometimes pneumonia is not is not the worst outcome. You know, quality of life is everything when someone's very, very ill and, and has a progressive disease. So I hope that what we said is is listened to. As far as the future of fees go, I think, you know, we've we've developed the technology to the point where it's it's really gives you a beautiful view. Some people are working on three-dimensional endoscopes so that you oh, can wow. actually get a three-dimensional view. What we see with fluoroamphes is both two-dimensional. Yeah. And on fees we see, you know, laterally, left, right, but we don't really see depth. And and we can't measure it. So you can't say there's one milliliter in that piriform or it's yeah. three quarters of the way filled because we we can't really measure it. So that will be that will be exciting when those and, and that will happen. It would be I think it would be two light channels coming down the same scope that would then create the three dimensional view. How cool. The other thing would be it may be interesting to see if we record more than thirty frames a second. Yeah, like say 60 or 90 frames a second, we would see just a little bit longer. We might see a few more structural movements like that pharyngeal squeeze that we see or the epiglottis or whatever. That may turn out to be interesting. They do that. They have that technology. I think it's chymography for voice. If you want to, they can record as much as 2,000 frames per second. And so that's more than we need, but maybe something like a hundred frames per second. Maybe it would be meaningful. I don't know. Those are the two technological. Oh, the other thing I think is very interesting is that dysphagia as a condition, as a problem is being recognized in more and more and more underdeveloped countries. Yes. So, so, you know, when like a country like Cambodia, where I have done Mm -hmm. some volunteer work, they're mostly interested in, is the patient, you know, having a heart attack? Is he going to die? They, if the patient can't eat, they put a feeding tube in and otherwise leave him alone. That's it. Cause that's sort of a second tier problem. It's not, it's not causing death that day. <laughs> so, so they yeah. they've been dealing with emergencies and very pretty crude level of care in many, many countries. Think of the African countries. Southeast Asian countries, the, the countries bordering India. And now that now they're, they're moving, they're advancing a little and they're beginning to realize that swallowing problems is a condition that can be evaluated and treated. And so more and more of those countries are turning to the West and saying, what are you doing to evaluate this problem? And fees or fluoro, they're considering both of those. Fees is clearly the the better tool for them because it's so much cheaper and they don't have a yep. lot of money and it's portable and they can yep. take it to the patient. And yep. so are you going to spend $500,000, you know, setting up a fluoro suite or are you going or buying a C-arm or are you going to buy an endoscopy unit? And so yep. in all of those countries, fees is the first instrumental exam done and sometimes the only. And yep. so it's yep. huge growth of fees. Yeah. In, in the rest of the world as dysphagia, Wonderful. as the awareness of dysphagia is growing, growing, growing. 
So we live in an exciting time. It is. I I love that you said that because I think it's easy to just get so narrow-minded and just think of our little bubble that we live in. But I mean, Uh even I experience it every day in just these real rural facilities that I go to, you know, it's like, what is this new tool? You know, what is fees? So I think as much as it's incredible to spread it across the world, there's still so much work we can do here in the U.S. too. So I I love, I love all of it. (laughs) Good. Good. Well, good luck to you. Thank you, Susan. Thank you so much for coming on here and, and sharing your wisdom. And I hope you do get to retire at some point, but no time I, soon. I, so. I just need to say I'm, I'm retired. Yes. <laughs> stop doing all this other stuff. Stop, but it, stop bugging me. It was people. so much yeah. fun talking to you. <laughs> yes, thank you. You as well. All right. Have a great day. Bye-bye. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills and thank you so much to all of you for listening.